Fortunately, I get to stay up here and preach this morning. So I had to be very careful and be very particular about making sure that when I came up from over there, that I had my Bible and I had my notes, so that when I sat down over there, I didn't have to run all the way back over there to get my stuff. I'm going to invite you this morning, before we start, to open to Ephesians chapter 1. And you might be wondering, why are we going into Ephesians chapter 1 when we are still in Colossians? We're going to get there this morning. But before we get into Colossians, I'd like to pray for us. I'd like to take the prayer from Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 17. So if you'd like to keep your eyes open and follow along, please feel free to do so. Father in heaven, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may you give us the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you, having the eyes of our hearts enlightened, that we may know what is the hope to which we have been called. What are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised us from the dead and seated us with him in the heavenly places. Father, may you give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning as we go into your word, as we talk about the glories of the gospel. May we be renewed by your word this morning. Amen. I now invite you to flip a few more pages over to Colossians chapter 3. A few few weeks ago, last week, Darren gave us the start of the commission to the church in Colossae, which was also the commission to us. And unfortunately, Darren had very little amount of time to get through it, but he only gave us half of the commission because Colossians doesn't end at Colossians 3 verse 11. It continues all the way into chapter 4. There is still more to the story. And so the question that we're going to ask this morning, if you have been raised with Christ, what now? So what? So what that we have been raised with Christ? Now what? See, so many of us have heard this part of the gospel. You have been raised with Christ. You've been saved from our sin. It is the gift of God. You just need to take it. But why? Why should we take this free gift? This is where Christianity is different from every other religion. Other religions say that here is a list of things that you need to do in order to be right with God. In other words, you get because you do. If you take Islam, for example, if you're a Muslim, there are five to six pillars, depending on the stream of faith that you follow in Islam, that you have to do in your lifetime in order for God to accept you. Some of them are proclaiming that Allah is Lord. Some of, one of them is you have to make a pilgrimage to Mecca in your lifetime. You have to pray five times a day. Well, what if I'm 23 years old and I haven't prayed five times a day and now 
I want to be a Muslim and I have to start praying five times a day. What, is, what does that mean for me? Is God going to accept me? Maybe. And Muslims grew up, go throughout their whole lives completely unsure if the works that they have done are going to be enough for them to enter paradise. They spend their whole lives going through a list of things that they need to do in order to maybe be right with God. But you see, this is our natural bent as humans. We are built to work. Even when you do not work on the weekend, you have your weekends to yourself, there's always that, that longing, that stirring inside of us that there's something to do. We know in the depths of our bones that there's something that we have to do. And this is why when we hear this good news that Jesus died for our sins, that it's a free gift, we just need to take it, that when you take it, there is still this sense of this question of, now what? Is there something that I need to do? And the answer, to one degree or another, is yes. You see, as every other religion says, you get because you do, Christ came and said, take so that you may do. We do because we have. We are told what to do because we are right with God. The free gift is given to us, and now we can freely do that which we have to do. There is not do in order that you get, there is you have, now go and do. In Colossians chapter 3, starting right at the beginning, there are three therefores in the first 17 verses. And if you quickly glance through, you might look and think to yourself, wait a minute, I only see one in there. And this is where an understanding of the original language comes into play. The word therefore used in this passage is the Greek word un, okay? And whenever we see that word, or whenever we see the therefore, there's other Greek words for therefore, we need to ask, wherefore is the therefore therefore? In other words, why is that therefore there? What is being talked about here? See, Paul takes the first two chapters talking about what it means to be raised with Christ, what Christ has done for us. And so then, at the start of chapter 3, he says this, If then, or therefore, you have been raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ, therefore, in verse 5, he says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly within you. Paul takes two chapters and says, you have been raised with Christ. Therefore, if you have been raised with Christ, which I've told you you are, if you have been, therefore put to death what is earthly within you. And here's the thing that we need to understand. Either one of these pieces on their own leaves us in error. If we just cling to being raised with Christ, we're like someone who takes the helmet of salvation puts it on, and goes, I'm good. And we run out the door with nothing else on. There's a breastplate of righteousness. There's a shield to extinguish the flaming arrows from the enemy. There's a belt of truth to hold up our pants. And yet so often, people take the helmet of truth and just run with it. But we cannot either stand there and say, 
All I need to do is put to death this list of things in verses 5 to 11. That's where we fall into legalism. If I just put to death these things, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be saved. I'm going to make myself right with God. But that is not the message that we have heard. And I want to be clear. This is not to say that someone who has just professed Christ is not saved. We know this from the thief on the cross next to Jesus. He, as he was dying, he looked to Jesus and said, I am wrong. You are God. And Jesus said, you will be with me in paradise. The thief didn't have any of this opportunity to put to death these things in his life, and he didn't have the opportunity to do what we're going to look at in our passage this morning. And this brings us to what we're going into today. If therefore you've been raised with Christ, therefore put to death what is within you. And then he says that we must therefore put something on. Put on, therefore. Here's why this is important. It cannot end with just putting these evil things to death. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus gives us a parable that helps us understand this. In this parable, he's talking specifically about demons that are possessing someone, but I think this applies to sin as well. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. You see, this is the dilemma of every well-meaning Christian when it comes to sin. We do as Jesus says. We cut off our hand that causes us to sin. We throw out our phone or our TV. We cut up our credit cards. We start only putting what we need in our fridge. We get accountability from friends and mentors. And yet, it seems that so often, every time, that sin comes back. And it comes back worse than before. It comes back with a greater vengeance. And that is because we have missed verse 12 of Colossians chapter 3. If you have been raised with Christ, what now? Put to death and put on. You cannot just put these things to death. They must be replaced with something. If we do not fill these places of death, the sin is going to come back and fill it with even more vengeance. And before we go into what we're told to put on to place of our sin, I want to go back and hit this home again. Salvation is a gift, right? Relationship with God is a gift. There's nothing you have to do. Why then are we now being told what to do? Why are we being told now, put to death and put on? Again, we do because we have. This 12th verse of chapter 3 says, put on then. These are not things that you are told to do. These are not things that you are told to conjure up or make ourselves these things. We are told to put them on. In order to clothe ourselves this morning, we didn't stand in the mirror and go, I'm clothed. 
This would make for a very awkward service if that was the case. Every single one of us had to put something on today that was other than ourselves in order to be in right relationship with the people around us here this morning. And that is what Paul is telling us to do here. He's not telling us to make ourselves these things or conjure up these things. We're told to put them on. How? How can we put these things on? Let's look at verse 12. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. As God's chosen ones, we have been given the gift of being able to put on that which would make us holy. We have been given the gift of being able to put on that which will make us like Christ. Let me prove this to you. The book of Ephesians that we were just in a moment ago, which if you read, if you put Ephesians and Colossians side by side, you start to realize Paul wrote the same book twice. It's very similar. Ephesians and Colossians are very similar. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 to 10, he says, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no man may boast. What's missing there? For we are his workmanship. God is working on us, created in Christ Jesus for good works. The good works don't make us right with God. The rightness with God was a gift. Now, Christ is working on us. God is working on us. And we have works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. These putting to death, these things that we are told to put on, are good works that God prepared in advance for us to do because we have been saved. And so what are we told to put on? We're told to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. If you were to evaluate yourself this morning, how many of you, how many of us, including me, are those things. I am none of those things. The only way that I am ever those things is because they have been put on me. Why is this important? What does is, what is Paul say? He says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Verse 13, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, you also must forgive. We put these things on so that we can bear with one another. Isn't it hard to bear with other people? It's hard. But we're told to put these things on so that we, the people of God, can bear with one another and that we can be united as one. Is that all that we're told to put on? Verse 14, and above all of these, put on love, 
Why? Why put on love above all the others? Were the others not good enough? No. But why does Paul say, put on love above all of the rest? Well, he says it here. It binds everything together in perfect harmony. How? How does love bind everything together in perfect harmony? If you were to go back to Jesus' ministry, Jesus was asked by the Pharisees once, what is the greatest commandment? Was it not to covet? Was it to not commit adultery? Was it that we shouldn't eat bacon or shellfish? Or that we should only have one type of, of, uh, of string in our clothes? If you guys had to sum up the greatest commandment in one word, what would it be? Love. Love. Jesus says the greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, with all your strength. And he doesn't just give them one. He says the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then he says this. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. See, now we come to realize something else. All of these things that Paul is telling us to put on, when we put them on, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. When we put on love, when we put on kindness, when we put on compassionate hearts, humility, meekness, we're fulfilling the law. I thought we were set free from the law and its regulations. Yes, to some degree, but not entirely. We were set free from certain parts of the law, things like festivals and Sabbaths and food, which Paul talked about in chapter 2 of Colossians, which were just a shadow of the things to come. But you see, the moral law of God is not bad. Paul says in Romans that we do not throw out the law, that we uphold it. Romans 3.31, do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. The law tells us what is wrong. For by works of the law, no human will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. And we are told to not sin any longer. Paul also says that the law was powerless to make us law keepers. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. You see, the law in itself, paper or stone tablets, had no power in and of themselves to make man follow it. The only way that any of the Israelites were able to follow it is because God helped them to follow it. A true lawkeeper is not one that maintains it begrudgingly. It's one that loves the boundaries. The law of God is perfect. And by putting on these things in Colossians, we fulfill it. That doesn't make us right with God. We've already screwed that up. Jesus came so that if we do sin, as 1 John says, we have an advocate with the Father. 
And yet, we put to death and we put on so that we can fulfill the law. This is a glorious part of the gospel that we often forget. Accepting Christ is not just hope for eternity. Christ did not just die on the cross to take away the punishment for sin in the end. Is Christ dead now? Come on, is he dead right now? No, he's alive. So how much more will we be alive? We've died to sin with Christ and we are made alive with him. God is not God of the dead. He is God of the living. We have been raised with Christ. There is new life. Paul also says in Romans that the righteous requirements of the law are being fulfilled in us. Romans 8.4 says, in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So Christ has died for the sins that we have committed, and as we walk in the Spirit and don't sin, if we don't sin, did Jesus have to die for those sins that we didn't commit because the Spirit helped us to walk in righteousness? No. And that is good news. Don't lose me on this statement. I disagree and think that Joel Olstein is wrong in 99.999% of everything he's ever said. However, there is one statement, one of his most famous statements, that he was totally right in statement, but millions of miles off in application. And that statement is that Christ does offer you your best life now as God intended. Not by way of money and houses and cars and investments, name it and claim it kind of stuff, but a life free from sin and the ability to walk in righteousness according to the perfect law of God. Law keeps things in order. How much of a mess would it be out there after church today, you got in your cars and you got to the end of this road over here and there was no yield sign? Well, you go down the hill and there's no stop sign. Heck, there's no lines on the road at all. You get down, maybe you live south of town, and you go to the railroad tracks and there's no arms that come down when the train comes. It would be utter chaos if we did not have law. It would be utter chaos if there was not something to guide us to tell us the right way to live. See, we are like gas cars that our whole lives we put diesel in it because we don't know any better and in fact there is no way for us to obtain fuel to put into our cars and so we just keep putting diesel in the tank hoping that someday it will be different well car won't start this morning let's go grab the diesel dad it won't start it's because you need fuel in there and we are only capable of putting gas in our gas cars because the spirit has come and given it to us this is good news. There is hope not just for the end. There is that, and it's going to be glorious. But there is hope for this life now. There is a right 
way to live, and God has given us the ability to do it. We kill sin, we put to death that which is evil within us, and we strive with the Spirit guiding us towards these things that he has given us to put on. Now, this is not just an individualistic passage. If you read through chapter 3, every time you see you, our English language is terrible for this. Is that you singular or is that you plural? I'm sure the King James it would have said you and thou, and it would have made much more sense. Okay? Every single you in chapter 3 is plural. And so this is a collective plural you, which includes me. And why is it so important for us to put to death the sin and put on righteousness? It's so that we can be in perfect harmony. In verse 15, Paul says, And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. This is about unity. This is about unity. As a wise preacher once said, as members of Christ's body, we are not so much individuals as we are interdividuals. All of us in here, all of those out at East Side or Open Bible or Rhineland or any believer anywhere around the world, we are all interconnected. And specifically with this church, as of 20 minutes ago, I'm now a member of this church. I'm a part of this family. And even though I've only been here for a few months, I have no delusions about what might be going on between people in this room. Let's look back at chapter 3, verse 8 with me. It tells us to put away anger, malice, slander, and obscene talk. It needs to be put away. And I know some of you in this room may have those, those feelings towards other people in this room. And many more of you may have those feelings towards people who used to be in this room on a Sunday morning, but aren't anymore. I know when I think about churches that I've been in growing up, it'd be very easy for me to have those feelings towards people in those churches. And yet they need to be put to death. We need to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, love, and peace. I'm not asking you to make yourselves these things, conjure these things up. Good luck with that. Just like standing in the mirror telling yourself you're going to be clothed on Sunday morning. We need to put them on. Kill the anger, kill the malice, kill the slander, the obscene talk the sexual immorality, the impurity, the passion, the evil desires, and put on these things so that we may be united. So let's go back to the start. Now what? You've been raised with Christ. What now? Put to death and we put on. You might be asking, David, I know these things 
I have these sinful things within me. I have anger. I have malice. I, there's people I could throw on the bus the ne- or under the bus the next second I get. Next opportunity I get, they're going under the bus because I'm just so angry with them. I'm going to take you out of this building for a second. Take you to wherever it is that you work. Think of somebody that just grinds your gears. Okay? Someone that you would throw under the bus. What would happen if we put on kindness, meekness, patience towards them? The way they treat you may not change, though I'm willing to bet it will, but your attitude towards them will change. Because as you put on kindness and humility and meekness towards them, you'll begin to see them as the sinner that you once were. The only reason that anybody in this room is not like the sinners who aren't in a room like this this morning is because of the spirit in us, because of the gift that has been given to us. That is the only advantage we have, and we did not get it by our own works. We got it as a gift. Now apply that to someone in your family, someone in this room. If you put this stuff on in a room of redeemed people, those relationships are going to change as we put on what Paul tells us to put on so that we may be united. So what does this look like? How do we do this? How do we put on that which is offered to us? First, if these things are outside of ourselves, if they are not things that are part of us, but things we must put on, and they come from the Spirit, they come from God, then we need to ask him for it. We must pray. We must go to God and ask them for it. Father, give me the compassion towards my boss. Father, give me kindness towards my brother in church. Father in heaven, give me patience towards the little ones sitting next to me in the pew right now. Father, give me love for those that you love. And second, this is like the greatest commandment. There's the first one that's greatest, and then there's the second one which is like it. It's also important. Second, you need to be thankful. Paul was thankful in all circumstances. If you read Paul's letters, all but three of his letters open with him giving thanks to God for the people he's writing to. And you see it up there, even the Corinthians. If you've read the book of 1 Corinthians, you know that that church was off the rails. They were in trouble. They were doing things that none of us could even imagine possible. And yet Paul opened and said, Father, Thank you for these people. Thank you that they know the truth. Help me as I tell them what to put to death, that they would be able to put on what is good. And here is how we ought to be thankful. The end of verse 15 says, And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. How do we let the word dwell in us? How do we let the word dwell in us? 
If we're going to be thankful for the word of God, we need to know what to be thankful for. Which means we have to read what God has done. If we don't know what he's done, how, how do we know what to be thankful for? You got a gift at Christmas. It's all wrapped up nice. Do you look at the gift under the tree and go, thanks, Mom, Dad, for that great gift, even though it could be a hunk of coal. Pair of socks. socks. I love socks for Christmas. I don't think I buy any of my own socks anymore. (laughs) We might be thankful for things, and it is good to be thankful for things that we don't know that God has done or things that we might that God might still do. But how much more thankful can we be once we open that gift and see that it socks? And go, hallelujah. I don't have to have holy socks anymore. They can be pagan socks. Just kidding. <laughs> oh boy. We need to read God's word in order that we can know what he has done. In a few weeks, Advent is starting And when we go into Advent, we're going to go back into the Old Testament and we're going to look at the promises that God made which were fulfilled in Jesus. And it's going to be a time of thanksgiving. Looking at all these promises over hundreds of years that God made that came true in Jesus. And there's so much to be thankful for in that. Another way that the word dwells in us is through song. It's through singing. Paul says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, speaking just to those of you in the room who lead worship on a Sunday morning, what this passage says is that when you pick songs to lead your family in worship with in the morning, on a Sunday morning, you are choosing songs that teach what is true to everybody else. When you leave here today, you are probably not going to remember a whole lot of what I said. But two hours from now, you're going to be making lunch or eating a sandwich. What am I humming? Oh yeah, it's that song that we sang in church this morning. Songs stick in our minds, they stick in our hearts more than just about anything else in our world. And so in leaders, when you pick songs, you are picking songs that are going to be in the hearts and the minds of the congregation throughout the week. So they better teach what is true. Speaking to everyone, again, when we come to church in the morning, we come as a church. The word church in the Greek, is the word ekklesia. Some of you have heard that word before. But what some of you may not realize is that that word, when you think about it, is a very weird word for the New Testament writers to choose to use to describe this. Because for hundreds of years before Christ even showed up, that word was being used everywhere. Whenever a town got together to talk about politics, things that were going on in the city, they were called an ecclesia. When the polis, the city, came together, they were an ecclesia. Politics is the policy of the people. And when we come together, 
as a body of Christ, we come together to remind each other and encourage each other in the policy of God. We come to be encouraged that we now can, in the Spirit, fulfill the law as we walk in the Spirit. And we're reminded what we ought to do. We're reminded what we need to put on. We're encouraged by our brothers and sisters to put on meekness, to put on kindness, to put on love. When we come together, there is a work to do. We are citizens of God's kingdom. And this church is a city, is a polis within that kingdom. And we have gathered to do a work And one of those works is singing. When we sing, this is not a performance. No matter how good the musicians are up on the stage, and there's some pretty good musicians here, when they play with skill, they're doing it to glorify God. And that shouldn't make you think, I have nothing to contribute. You have your voices to contribute. This is not something that we come to consume. And I must say, in the few months that I've been here, I've been very encouraged by this church. Even this morning, I stopped singing just for a moment. And I could hear almost perfectly balanced the voices out there and the music coming from up here. That is a beautiful thing. We come together, we have come to glorify God. We have come to remind each other about the word of God, so that the word of God may dwell in us, so that we know what to put on, so that we know how we may put on these things. This is not a place for professionals. This is a place for professors of Christ. Verse 17, God tells us, God, or Paul tells us, culmination of all of this. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. What is our purpose as believers? I've been asking this question in youth just about every night that we've had youth. What is our purpose? And the Westminster Catechism tells us that the purpose of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. See, we live our best lives now. We enjoy God by glorifying him, by following his law, by putting on kindness and meekness, putting gas in the tank so that our cars will run so that we can live truly human lives and give thanks to God for it. We have good works to do. We have a mission to work towards. Go and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded them, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Go and make disciples. We have a mission. And we have been given the fuel that we need for our tanks. See, freedom is not continually putting diesel in our gas tank because we feel like it's right. Freedom is the ability to put in what we need. We were designed to run on fuel. We were designed to be compassionate, kind, meek, patient, and loving, peaceful, and thankful people. And sin made us not that. 
we have been raised with Christ. Therefore, put to death what is earthly within you and go to the Father through the Son by the Spirit and put on. As, in order that, as Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, in order that we might have life and have it to the fullest. We do have our best life now because we have the ability to live the way that the designer designed us to live. It's because of Christ, because of his sacrifice, because he died and was raised to life, we can put to death and we can put on. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonders of your gospel, of your good news. Father, we, there was no way that we were ever going to make ourselves right with you. From the very beginning, we sinned. Yet you've come and you've made us right with you. And you have given us the ability to live the way that we were designed to live. Father, as we go from this place, would you help us to pray? Help us to come to you to ask for the clothes to put on. Ask for the armor of God to put on, the helm of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the shield to extinguish the arrows of the evil one. Help us to know how to handle the sword of truth so that we may have life and have it to the fullest for your glory and for your kingdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.